This is Music Notes and More with your host, Jason Ginty. Bon Jovi get paid in firewood. Green Day get in a mud fight and piss off their mom. John Lennon creates confusion with Jesus. And Sir Mix-a-Lot loves a big juicy ass. For the week of August 12th, let's take a look back in music and pop culture history. Sometimes being a rock star ain't all it's cracked up to be. It was this week back in 1969 that the Woodstock Music and Art Fair began in Bethel, New York. It was a three-day concert, featured 24 bands, drew over 400,000 people. You talked to a lot of people, they were there. Chances are, they weren't. Woodstock was designed as a profit-making venture, but promoters had a hell of a time trying to sign any big-name acts. In April 1969, Creedence Clearwater Revival became the first act to sign a contract for the event. Creedence drummer Doug Clifford later said that once Creedence signed, well, everyone else jumped in line and all the big acts came on. Now, given their 3 a.m. start time, yeah, that's right, 3 a.m. start time, and their omission from the Woodstock film, Creedence members have expressed bitterness over their experience at Woodstock. Of course, Santana, Jimi Hendrix, Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, The Who, and many, many more played the three-day festival, and this year celebrating 50 years. It was this week back in 1991 that Metallica's self-titled album was released. The album, referred to as the Black Album, became the band's best-selling album. Now, it uh, produced five singles that are considered to be among the band's most well-known songs, which include Enter Sandman, The Unforgiven, Nothing Else Matters, Wherever I May Roam, and Sad But True. You've heard them a million times because, well, damn it, I've played them a million times on the radio. Now, you'd think this would all be good, right? Well, not so much for the early fans of the band Metallica. They consider this album the band Selling Out Man. I was lucky enough to interview Lars from Metallica backstage in Biloxi in the late 1990s. And let me tell you, it was Metallica in the late 90s, and I was pretty new at this whole radio thing. And I'm going to interview one of the icons. So what do I do? I grab my recorder, I drive to Biloxi from New Orleans, and I wait backstage for four hours. But you know what? Four hours was going to be worth it because I was going to get to speak to Lars from Metallica, man. I had to take a whiz so bad. Couldn't go because I was afraid I'd miss him. Then, after four hours go by, the garage doors backstage open up. Four limos pull in one at a time. First limo, Jason Newstead. I begin to let a little whiz out of my pants. Then, you've got Kirk Hammett. I'm like, okay. I'm just going to whiz my pants right here. And then you've got James freaking Hetfield stepping out of a limo. And they all waved to me and, you know, everybody else standing backstage. And then there he is, Lars. I'm like, holy crap, here we go. Well, then he takes off to a dressing room and I wait another half hour. And then like his people come and get me. So I go wandering in there. My hands are shaking. I've, I've had four and a half hours to build this up in my head. Plus all the research I've been doing. I'm freaking out. I walk into a room, and it's as big as, you know, a 10 by 10 bedroom, and there's a table and two chairs sitting in it. That's it. I'm like, oh, God, this is uncomfortable. So I put the recorder on the, uh, on the table, and I hit play and record because I wanted to make sure that thing was rolling before he walked in. Five minutes later, here comes in Lars Ulrich from Metallica. He's got the wife beater tank top on, some jeans. I stand up. I shake his hand. And then I proceed to talk to him for 45 minutes. 
like we were best friends in the world. That is how cool Lars from Metallica was to me that day. He didn't have to be. I didn't know anything. I had a shitty microphone. I looked like a hack. But you know what? The dude sat there and listened to my questions, was super gracious, got a great interview. We ended up talking about tennis and all kinds of crazy stuff. He got a knock on the door halfway through my interview. Time to go, Lars. He's like, no, I'm not done yet. (laughs) I'm like, holy crap. He wanted to stay and give me everything I needed for the interview. Eventually, we shook hands, took a picture, and off went Lars from Metallica. So say what you want about them selling out or being pricks for suing Napster, whatever. You know what? That 45 minutes I got to sit backstage and talk to Lars from Metallica was cool. He was awesome. This week back in 1966, John Lennon ran into a buzzsaw and had to apologize at a news conference in Chicago for his remark that the Beatles are more popular than Jesus. You see, here's the thing. He had to apologize because during an earlier interview, and this is what he said, he argued that the public were more infatuated with the Beatles than with Jesus and that Christian faith was declining to the extent that it might be outlasted by rock music. His opinions drew angry reactions from Christian communities. Lennon's comments incited protests, threats, particularly through the United States Bible Belt. Some radio stations stopped playing Beatles songs. Their records were publicly burned. Press conferences were canceled, and the Ku Klux Klan picketed concerts. Yes, that Ku Klux Klan. He pissed off the KKK. The controversy uh, coincided with the band's 1966 U.S. tour. Lennon apologized numerous times and explained that he was not comparing himself to Christ. Here's the problem. Even today, with Facebook and social media, Somebody says something, somebody interprets it incorrectly, and it blows up like wildfire. This is what happened to John Lennon. The controversy overshadowed press coverage of the Beatles' newest album, Revolver, and exacerbated the band's unhappiness at touring, which they never undertook again. Lennon also refrained from touring in his solo career. In 1980, John Lennon was murdered by Mark David Chapman, a born-again Christian who was motivated partly by Lennon's remarks on religion and the more popular than Jesus quote. This week back in 1989, Bon Jovi's New Jersey album became the first U.S. album to be released legally in the Soviet Union. Now check this out. Normally you release an album, you get paid for it, right? Well, the Russian label called Melodia paid Bon Jovi with a truckload of firewood. Since rubles, the monetary unit uh, for Russia back then, weren't allowed to leave Russia. That's right, Bon Jovi got paid in firewood. Back in 1980, Todd Rundgren's home in Woodstock, New York, was invaded by four masked men. Rundgren, his girlfriend, and three of his pals were bound, gagged, and had to sit there and watch while the criminals and the thieves stripped his house of all the valuables. That had to be scary as hell. It was this week in 1994 that Woodstock 94 opened in Saugerties, New York. The opening was on the 25th anniversary of the original Woodstock Music and Art Fair. It featured Aerosmith, Metallica, Nine Inch Nails, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and an incredible set by Green Day. 
Now, Green Day, at the time, were just kind of getting going. They were booked on the less prestigious South Stage midway through the final day of the festival. And a lot of the festival goers, they decided to watch the Allman Brothers and Bob Dylan and the Spin Doctors on the main stage. So Green Day ended up attracting a much younger and, well, wilder crowd. It rained a ton not long before they went on stage, and many fans were already caked in mud. Now keep in mind, it's 1994, and Green Day's major label debut album called Dookie had been out for just five months at this point. Now the group recognized that Woodstock 94 was an amazing opportunity to reach a much wider audience. And when the fans began throwing mud clumps at the stage, the guys in Green Day didn't hesitate to throw the clumps back at the crowd, culminating in a near riot where a security guard mistook bassist Mike Dirt for a psychotic fan and smashed his front teeth out. It was absolute chaos. It was also one of the most memorable performances of the entire festival. Now, within three months, the album Dookie was at number four on the charts and the band was headlining arenas across the country. Welcome to Paradise, Longview, Basket Case were all over radio and MTV. And Green Day are now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And you'll never guess through all this who hated the Green Day performance. Billy Joe Armstrong's mom. While her son was becoming a punk rock icon, all she saw was her son pulling his pants down, throwing mud at fans, and screaming obscenities live on television. It was nothing but a profound embarrassment to Billy Joe's mom. Now, Billy Joe said that his mom sent a hate letter after the concert. She said that I was disrespectful and indecent, and that if my father was alive, he would be ashamed of me. She couldn't believe that I pulled my pants down and I got in a fight on stage. She even talked shit about my wife. It was pretty brutal. So you could become a world-famous rock star, but just don't piss off your mom. And now, this week in medical history. Prior to 1865, if you had any type of surgery, you probably had numerous complications afterwards if you even lived. Now, most people believe that exposure to bad air was responsible for infections and wounds. Hospital wards were occasionally aired out as a precaution against the spread of infection. Facilities for washing your hands or a patient's wounds were not available. A surgeon was not required to wash his hands before seeing a patient. Such practices were not considered necessary. Ugh. Now, surgeons of the time referred to the good old surgical stink and took pride in the stains on their unwashed operating gowns as a display of their experience. Oh, that's right. That doctor doesn't have any blood splattered all over him. I don't want him cutting on me with an old rusty knife. Give me the guy with all the filth all over him. That's my man. Enter Joseph Lister. In 1865, he used disinfectant for the very first time. Now, this led to a reduction in post-operative infections and made surgery safer for patients, distinguishing him as the father of modern surgery. You might be thinking, hey, wait a minute, the mouthwash, Listerine, must be the guy, right? Well, actually, no. It's named in honor of Joseph Lister. 
There's not too many bands that go through guitar players like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. It was this week in 1993 that they replaced guitarist Eric Marshall with Jesse Tobias. Now, Tobias was replaced by Jane's Addiction's Dave Navarro three months later. Dave Navarro lasted one album, and he was fired in 1998 because he just didn't fit. How weird does the band have to be when Dave Navarro doesn't fit? This week, we celebrated our friends who happened to be left-handed. That's right. This was the week we right-handers recognized that scissors suck for you guys. Playing cards? They're unreadable. Swiping your credit card is awkward. Playing video games is a pain in the ass. And everyone realizes you are left-handed. And they always have a smart-ass remark like, Uh, are you left-handed? You know, left-handed are more creative. You should be a pitcher. Anyway, thank you, left-handers, for not kicking the crap out of us right-handers all the time. Sir Mix-a-Lot celebrated a birthday this week, born in 1963, and you've heard his song, you know, Baby Got Back. Well, this guy is a damn genius. You see, he wrote the song Baby Got Back, which went to number one back in 1992. And it still gets played a lot today. At the time of its original release, the song caused all kinds of controversy with its outspoken and blatantly sexual lyrics about, well, women and specific references to the ass, which some people found objectionable. Now, the song's music video was briefly banned by MTV. Now, Sir Mix-a-Lot says the song came from the fact that he saw very little representation of full-figured women in media. All the late 1980s and early 90s TV commercials only featured very, very thin Valley Girl-esque models. So he decided to dedicate a song to the very opposite, featuring curvy women of color to, and I quote, broaden the definition of beauty. He said, the song doesn't just say I like large butts, you know. The song is talking about women who damn near kill themselves to try and look like these beanpole models that you see in Vogue magazine. He explains that most women respond positively to the song's message, especially black women. They all say, well, it's about damn time. It was this week back in 1877 that Thomas Edison invented the phonograph and made the first sound recording. Now, you know, he immediately grew out his beard and never stopped talking about how vinyl sounds better than CDs, man, and drank a lot of coffee. Look, I couldn't tell you if vinyl sounds better than CDs or whatever, but I can tell you this. It's hard to make the comparison because it's all about your entire sound system, not just the record that you've purchased. You gotta have a good sound system all the way through from turntables to amp to speakers. If you've got a kick-ass, super awesome record that you just bought, and you got a shitty turntable and speakers with holes in them, well, guess what? Your vinyl's gonna suck. This week, back in 1982, the amazing movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High was released. It featured Sean Penn as Jeff Spicoli. It was written by Cameron Crowe. He's a guy who did singles, Jerry Maguire, Almost Famous. Great movie, great soundtrack, and of course, the pool scene. Yeah, the pool scene, the red bikini, you know what I'm talking about, right? Well, think of another scene now. Get your mind off of that one. Remember the girl in the car? who laughs at Brad's fast food pirate costume, that was heart guitarist Nancy Wilson. Of course, she was Cameron Crowe's then-girlfriend and future wife. 
You got to go back to 1889 when a patent for a coin-operated telephone was issued to a guy named William Gray. Now, you don't see payphones on the corner much anymore because of, well, obviously cell phones. But according to the FCC, there are approximately 100,000 payphones left throughout the country today. And about a fifth of them are in New York. There were around 2 million in 1999 before cell phones got popular. Hello? He's dead? Yes. Music fans around the world were devastated by the news of Elvis Presley's death on August 16th, 1977. Now, you ask anyone that was a fan of his while he was alive, and they'll tell you where they were when they got the news that Elvis Presley had died. Now, he remains the king of rock and roll today. Millions of people around the world still buy his music, and hundreds of thousands visit Graceland every single year to see where he lived, died, and remains buried today. And by the way, if you haven't made a trip to Graceland, you got to do it. You just got to do it. It's very, very uh, 70s and Elvis-y. Uh, Elvis is so popular today, today, that he ranked number two behind Michael Jackson on Forbes' list of highest paid celebrities last year. Elvis has been dead for over 40 years, and he pulled in 40 million bucks last year. Dude, 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 no way. No, well, this is actually true. A guy named Carl Wickman began using his beat-up gray car, which no one would buy, to take miners from their homes to the mines in Minnesota. His taxi service for the miners took off like crazy, and he was soon able to buy more cars to service the mine workers. Well, then he went from cars to buses, and his little business is now known as the Greyhound Bus Corporation today. It was also this week, back in 1942, that Henry Ford, yes, the father of the automobile, unveiled his soybean car. Yeah, it was a plastic-bodied car that weighed about a 1,000 pounds less than a steel car. Now, what he was doing was looking for a project that would combine the auto industry with the agriculture industry. He also claimed that the plastic panels made the car safer than traditional steel cars. Another reason was due to a shortage of metal at the time. It was the start of World War II. Now, there's the problem. The outbreak of World War II suspended all auto production, and therefore, the plastic car experiment died with World War II. Imagine where we could be today if he kept developing the soybean cars back in 1942. It was this week back in 1975 that Peter Gabriel officially announced that he was leaving the group Genesis. Phil Collins would be the new lead singer after the group auditioned more than 400 potential musicians. And they went, hey, you're the drummer. Why don't you sing? They could have saved a lot of time. It was back in 1942 that Walt Disney's movie Bambi opened at Radio City Music Hall up in New York. Bambi is a damn classic. Everybody's seen it probably numerous times. But you realize Bambi lost money at the box office for its first release? Out of its $1.7 million budget, it only brought in $1.64 million. It was a failure to start with. 
Robert Johnson is known as the king of the Delta blues. His influence on music is far-reaching. The Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton, the Allman Brothers, and countless others have recorded his songs. He played a show at a roadhouse outside of Greenwood, Mississippi this week back in 1938. And then a couple days later, he was dead. Speculation has been for years that Johnson was poisoned after the show. It was this week back in 1994 that Major League Baseball players went on strike rather than allow team owners to limit their salaries. The strike lasted 232 days, and as a result, the World Series was wiped out for the first time in 90 years. It was also on this day back in 1983 that Paul Simon and Carrie Fisher were married. Now, they divorced in 1985. Now, keep in mind, It was 1983 when they got married. What the hell was going on in 1983? Well, it was the height of Star Wars because Return of the Jedi came out in 1983. And of course, you remember the scene with uh, Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia in the gold bikini. Yes, it was a very cool scene other than the background being Jabba the Hutt. Well, either way, that's when they got married. In 2015... An unknown buyer paid $96,000 for the gold bikini worn by Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia in Return of the Jedi. So look, it's not all hookers blow mansions and fast cars for your favorite rock stars. Now sure, that part is great and all, but being a rock star isn't all it's cracked up to be sometimes. I mean, look, John Lennon made an observation about society and the Beatles, and it got turned into him saying he was bigger than Jesus. Green Day took a bad situation at Woodstock and completely turned it around and turned themselves into legends. Of course, it took out Mike Dern's teeth and pissed off Billy Joe's mom, but they are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now. Metallica created one of the biggest commercially successful metal albums of all time, but because it went multi-platinum, they were labeled as sellouts by their early fans. Bon Jovi, one of the hottest bands at the time, got paid in firewood for their album being released in Russia. And the influential Robert Johnson was at the peak of his creativity and popularity when somebody allegedly poisoned him and killed him three days later. Now look, rock stars, they do have it great, but sometimes it can be a bit of a pain in the ass. Music Notes and More is generally hacked together by me, Jason Ginty. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. And if you enjoyed this episode, well, be sure to like, subscribe, and listen to other Music Notes and More episodes. 